Part 3, Chapter 22 Further Advice on the Subject of Friendships Friendship requires close communication between friends, since otherwise it can neither come into existence nor remain in existence. Because of this fact, it often happens that, with the exchange of friendship, many other exchanges imperceptibly pass and slip from one heart to another by mutual infusion and reciprocal sharing and affection, inclinations and impressions. This especially occurs when we have a high esteem for the one we love, since we then open our heart to his friendship in such wise that, along with it, inclinations and impressions, whether good or bad, quickly and completely enter into us. Certainly Heraclean bees seek nothing but honey, but with the honey they unknowingly suck in the poisonous qualities of the aconite from which they draw it. Hence, Philothea, at such times we must carefully practice what the Savior of our souls was accustomed to say, as the ancients have informed us, be good bankers or money changers. That is, don't take in bad money along with the good, or base gold along with the fine. Separate the precious from the vile. Yes, for there is hardly anyone who is entirely free from imperfections. Why should we indiscriminately absorb a friend's tears and imperfections together with his friendship? Certainly we must love him in spite of his faults, for friendship requires us to share the good, not evil. Hence, just as those who dig gravel out of the river Tagus also pick up the gold they find and take it away while leaving the sand on the banks, so also those who share in a good friendship ought to remove the sand of its imperfections and not let it get into their souls. In fact, St. Gregory Nazianzen testifies that many who liked and admired St. Basil were unwittingly led to imitate him even in his outward faults, such as his habit of speaking slowly with an abstracted and pensive mind, his style of beard, and way of walking. We see husbands, wives, children, and friends who have great regard for their friends, parents, husbands, and wives, but acquire in the course of association with them, either by giving in to them or by imitating them, a thousand little unfortunate ways. This should not be. Everyone has enough bad inclinations of his own without burdening himself with another's. Far from requiring this, Friendship obliges us, rather, to aid and assist one another to free ourselves from every kind of fault. We must, of course, meekly put up with a friend's faults, but we must not lead them into faults, much less acquire his faults ourselves. I speak only of imperfections. As to sins, we must neither occasion them nor tolerate them in our friends. It is either a weak or a sinful friendship that watches our friend perish without helping him, that sees him die of an abscess and does not dare to save his life by opening it with a lance of correction. Genuine living friendship cannot continue in the midst of sin. Just as the salamander puts out a fire it lies on, so sin destroys the friendship in which it lodges. If it is only a passing sin, friendship will soon put it to flight by correction. If it stops and remains there, friendship immediately perishes, for it lives only on true virtue. How much less, then, should we commit sin for the sake of friendship? A friend who would lead us into sin has become our enemy. If he wishes to ruin and destroy his friend, he deserves to lose his friendship. One of the surest marks of false friendship is to see it given to a vicious person, no matter what his sins may be. If the person we love is vicious, 
then our friendship is undoubtedly also vicious. Since it does not look to true virtue, it is necessarily based on some frivolous virtue or sensual quality. An arrangement made among merchants for material gain is only a mere show of true friendship, since it is not made for love of their fellow men, but for love of gain. Finally, two divine texts are two mighty columns for the firm support of a Christian life. The first is by the wise men, He who fears God shall likewise have a good friendship. The other is that of St. James the Apostle. The friendship of this world is the enemy of God. Part 3, Chapter 23, The Exercise of Exterior Mortification Men engaged in horticulture tell us that if a word is written on a sound almond seed and it is put back in its shell, bound up carefully, and planted, whatever fruit the tree bears will have that same written word stamped on it. For myself, Philothea, I cannot approve the methods of those who try to reform a man by beginning with outward things, such as his bearing, dress, or hair. On the contrary, it seems to me that we ought to begin inside him. Be converted to me with your whole heart, God says. My son, give me your heart. Since the heart is the source of our actions, as the heart is, so are they. When the divine spouse invites the soul, he says, Put me as a seal on your heart, as a seal on your arm. Yes, for whoever has Jesus Christ in his heart will soon have him in all his outward ways. For this reason, dear Philothea, I have wished above all else to engrave and inscribe on your heart this holy and sacred motto, Live Jesus. I am certain that your life, which comes from the heart, just as the almond tree comes from its seed, will therefore produce all its actions, which are its fruits, inscribed and engraved with this sacred word of salvation. As our beloved Jesus lives in your heart, so too he will live in all your conduct, and he will be revealed by your eyes, mouth, hands, yes, even the hair on your head. With St. Paul you can say these holy words, It is no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. In short, whoever wins a man's heart has won the whole man. Yet even the heart, where we wish to begin, must be instructed as to how it should model its outward conduct and bearing, so that by them men can see not only holy devotion, but also great wisdom and prudence. For this purpose, I will give you in summary fashion the following words of advice. If you can stand fasting, you will do well to fast on certain days in addition to those prescribed by the Church. Besides the usual effects of fasting, namely elevating our spirits, keeping the body in subjection, practicing virtue, and gaining a greater reward in heaven, it is valuable for restraining gluttony and keeping our sensual appetites and bodies subject to the law of the Spirit. Although we may not fast very much, yet the enemy has greater fear of us when he sees that we can fast. Wednesdays, Fridays, and Saturdays are the days on which the early Christians chiefly observed abstinence, and you should therefore choose some of them to fast as far as your devotion and your director's judgment advise you. I gladly agree with what St. Jerome said to the devout Leda. Long, immoderate fasts displease me very much, especially by those who are still quite young. I have learned by experience that when an ass's foal grows tired, it tries to wander away. 
meaning that young people who are weakened by excessive fasting easily turn to soft living. Stags run poorly at two times, when too fat and heavy, and when too lean. We are very much exposed to temptation, both when our bodies are too pampered and when too run down, for the one makes the body demanding in its softened state, and the other desperate with affliction. Just as we cannot support the body when it is too fat, so also it cannot support us when it is too thin. Lack of moderation in fasting, use of discipline, hair shirts, and other forms of austerity makes many men's best years useless for the service of charity. This was the case even with St. Bernard, and he regretted that he had been too austere with himself. The more some men mistreat the body in the beginning, the more they are led to pamper it in the end. Wouldn't they have done better to have a program that is balanced than in keeping with the duties and tasks their state in life obliges them to? Both fasting and labor mortify and subdue the flesh. If your work is necessary for you to contribute to God's glory, I much prefer that you endure the pains of work rather than of fasting. Such is the mind of the church, for it exempts those who are working in the service of God and our neighbor even from prescribed fasts. One man finds it difficult to fast, another to take care of the sick, visit prisoners, hear confessions, preach, comfort the afflicted, pray, and perform similar tasks. These last sufferings are of greater value than the first. Besides subduing the body, they produce much more desirable fruits. Generally speaking, therefore, it is better to maintain our bodily strength even more than necessary rather than to weaken it too much. We may always discipline the body when we wish, but we cannot always restore its strength when we like. We should listen with great reverence to the words said to his disciples by our Savior and Redeemer, Eat what is set before you. It is, I believe, a greater virtue to eat without preference what is put before you and in the order it is put before you, whether you like it or dislike it, than always to choose the worst. Although this latter way of life seems more austere, the former demands more resignation, for by it we renounce not only our taste, but our choice as well. Moreover, it is no little mortification to adapt our taste to all kinds of food and keep it under control at all times. Again, mortification of this kind doesn't show in public, bothers no one, and is well adapted to social life. To set one kind of food aside in order to eat another kind, examine and criticize everything, find nothing properly prepared or good enough, and make a to-do over every mouthful, all this reveals a soft character attached to dishes and dainties. I respect St. Bernard for drinking oil instead of water or wine more than if he had deliberately drunk wormwood. It is a proof that he did not think of what he drank. And such indifference as to what we must eat and drink is found the perfect practice of that sacred text, Eat what is set before you. However, I accept such foods as may injure one's health or badly affect one's spirits, as do certain hot, highly seasoned, smoked, windy foods, and certain occasions when nature needs restoration and help in order to carry out some work for God's glory. Steady, moderate sobriety is preferable to periods of violent abstinence, interspersed with periods of great self-indulgence. Moderate use of the discipline has wonderful power to awaken the spirit of devotion. 
The hair shirt mortifies the flesh greatly, but in general, its use is not proper either for married people or those with delicate constitutions, or those who have to endure great suffering. However, on some special penitential days, it may be used with the advice of a prudent confessor. We must use the night for sleep, each one according to his disposition, so as to get what is needed to spend the day usefully. Many scriptural passages, the example of the saints, and natural reason all strongly recommend to us the morning as the best and most profitable part of the day. Our Lord himself is named the rising sun, and Our Lady is called the dawning of the day. Hence, I think it is prudent for us to go to rest early in the evening, so we can awaken and get up early in the morning. Certainly, it is the brightest, most pleasant, and least troubled part of the day. The very birds invite us to awaken and praise God, so that early rising is helpful to both health and holiness. Balaam was mounted on a she-ass and going to visit King Balak, but because he did not have a right intention, an angel waited for him on the road, sword in hand, to kill him. When the ass saw the angel, she stood still at three different times, as if disturbed at something. Balaam beat her cruelly with the staff in order to make her move forward, and on the third occasion she lay down beneath Balaam, miraculously spoke to him, and said, What have I done to you? Why are you beating me for the third time? Soon after, Balaam's eyes were opened, and he saw the angel, who said to him, Why have you beaten your ass? If she had not turned away from me, I would have slain you. Then Balaam said to the angel, Lord, I have sinned, not knowing that you stood against me in the way. You see, Philothea, although Balaam is the cause of the evil, yet he strikes and beats a poor beast that could not prevent it. It is often the same with us. A woman sees her husband or child lying ill and suddenly takes up fasting, a hair shirt, and discipline, as David did on similar occasion. Unfortunately, my friend, you too beat the poor beast. You punish the body, but it cannot remedy the evil. Nor is it the reason God's sword is drawn against you. Correct your heart, which idolizes your husband, tolerates many faults in the child, and prepares it for pride, vanity, and ambition. Again, a man sees that he often falls deep into the sin of impurity. Inward remorse assails his conscience like a sharp sword to pierce him with a holy fear, and when his heart has got out of control of itself, he says, Ah, wicked flesh! Ah, treacherous body! You have betrayed me! Immediately, by immoderate fasting, excessive use of the discipline, and unbearable hair shirts, he inflicts great blows on his body. O oh, poor soul, if your flesh could speak like Balaam's ass, it would say to you, Wretched man, why do you strike me? It is against you, my soul, that God arms his vengeance. It is you who are the criminal. Why do you use my eyes, my hands, and my lips in wantonness? Why do you trouble me with impure imaginations? Cherish good thoughts, and I shall have no evil movements. Shun immodest company, and I will not be aroused to lust. It is you, alas, who hurl me into the flames, and then do not want me to burn. You cast smoke into my eyes, but you do not want them to be inflamed. Beyond doubt, in such cases, God says to you, Beat, break, rend, and crush your heart to pieces, for it is chiefly against it that my anger is aroused. To cure the itch, there is need not so much to wash and bathe as to clean the blood and purge the liver. So also, to be cured of our vices, 
It is good indeed to mortify the flesh, but it is still more necessary to cleanse our affections and purge our hearts. But above all else, and in every place, we must never undertake bodily austerities without the advice of our spiritual director. Part 3, Chapter 24 Society and Solitude Seeking familiar conversations with others and avoiding them are two extremes, and both are blameworthy and devout people living in the world, whom we are now discussing. To avoid such conversations shows disdain and contempt for our neighbor. To seek them is a mark of sloth and idleness. We must love our neighbor as ourselves, and to show that we love him we must not shun his company, and to show that we love ourselves we must not dwell within ourselves. Think first of yourself and then of others, St. Bernard says. If you are not obliged to go out into society or entertain company at home, remain within yourself and entertain yourself within your own heart. If people visit you or if you are called out into society for some just reason, go as one sent by God and visit your neighbor with a benevolent heart and a good intention. Associations are termed evil when made with an evil intention or when the company is vicious, imprudent, and dissolute. For these reasons, we must avoid them in the way bees shun wasps and hornets. When anyone is bitten by a mad dog, his perspiration, breath, and even spittle become infectious, especially for children and those who have a delicate constitution. So also, vicious, dissolute persons cannot be visited without the utmost risk and danger, especially by those whose devotion is as still tender and delicate. There are some needless visits made merely for purposes of recreation and diversion from our serious occupations. We must not be too addicted to such visits, although they may be permitted during the leisure time assigned to recreation. Other social gatherings have good manners as their object, as in the exchange of visits and certain gatherings made to pay respect to our neighbor. With respect to these, we must not be too meticulous in practice of them, nor must we be impolite in condemning them. We must modestly do our duty in their regard so that we may equally avoid ill-breeding and frivolity. It remains for us to speak of useful associations, like those of devout and virtuous persons. To meet frequently with such persons will be of the very greatest benefit to you, Philothea, just as vines planted among olive trees produce oily grapes with the taste of olives, so also a soul often in the company of virtuous people cannot help sharing in their good qualities. Drones cannot make honey without the help of bees, and in like manner it is a great help to us in the practice of virtue to associate with devout souls. In all our associations with others, sincerity, simplicity, meekness, and modesty are always to be preferred. Some people never make a gesture or a movement without so much affectation that everybody is annoyed by it. Just as a man unable to walk without counting his steps or speak without singing would be annoying to others, so those who affect in artificial manner and do nothing in a natural way are very disagreeable in society. There is always a sort of presumption in such people. Ordinarily, moderate cheerfulness should predominate in our associations with others. St. Romwald and St. Anthony have been highly praised because in spite of of all their austerity, they always had their countenance and speech adorned with joy, gaiety, and courtesy. Rejoice with them that rejoice, and with the apostle I tell you, again I say, rejoice always, but in the Lord. 
let your modesty be known to all men. To rejoice in the Lord, the reason for your joy must be not only lawful, but also suitable. I say this because there are some things that are lawful but not fitting, that your moderation may be known to all, keep free from insolence, which certainly is always reprehensible, to cause one of the party to fall down, soil another's face, tease a third, or harm a feeble-minded person in some way, all these are foolish, insolent jokes and amusements. Besides that mental solitude to which you may retreat even in the midst of the highest society, as I have already observed, you must also love real physical solitude. You should not go out into the desert like St. Mary of Egypt, St. Paul, St. Anthony, Arsenius, or the other ancient solitaries did. You should remain for some time alone with yourself in your room, or garden, or some other place. There you will have leisure to withdraw your spirit into your heart and refresh your soul with pious meditations, holy thoughts, or a little spiritual reading after the example of the great Bishop of Nazianzus. Speaking of himself, he says, I walked alone by myself about sunset and passed the time on the seashore, for it is my custom to use such recreation to refresh myself and shake off a little of my ordinary troubles. Later, he relates the pious reflections that he made, which I have already mentioned. There is also the example of St. Ambrose. St. Augustine says that often when he went to St. Ambrose's home, he never denied entrance to anyone, he found him reading. After remaining there for a while, St. Augustine left without speaking a word for fear of interrupting him, since he thought he should not deprive this great shepherd of the little time left to relax his mind after the rush of all his various duties. Also, when the apostles one day told our Lord about how they preached and how much they had done, he said to them, Come apart into a desert place and rest a while.